6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1. Well, let's uh, bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the opportunity to explore these precious letters from dear Paul. We pray, Father, that you'd open our hearts and lives to, the, to your word, that we might grow in grace the knowledge of our Lord and Savior as we commit this time and ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to start a study of what are called the pastoral epistles. But before I do, I want to mention a help wanted ad that I think it was Warren Wearsby put in one of his commentaries. Visualize reading this as a want ad. Men and women wanted for the difficult task of building my church. You'll be often misunderstood even by those working with you. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor, and you will, your full reward will not come till after all your work is completed. It may cost you your home, your ambitions, even your life. Anyone ready to sign up? <laughs> I always like to start these sessions by asking, how many of you are in the full-time ministry? Can I see a show of hands? Oh, good for you. That right on. How many of you are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ? How many of you are in the full-time ministry, whether you know it or not? <laughs> So these letters that we're going to study are not for pastors in the traditional sense. They're for every one of us. And that's really what it's all about here. Now, the New Testament, as you realize, consists of what five Gospels, as I call it. I treat the book of Acts or Luke, volume 2, as a Gospel. Then we have 13 Pauline epistles. We have eight Hebrew epistles. And then, of course, we have this peculiar book, uh, the, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. And uh, the two pr principal doctrinal epistles, of course, are Romans and Hebrews. But uh, we then have seven churches written uh, to by Paul. And uh, then among those seven churches are the three that he wrote while in prison. They're called the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. But we're going to explore these three that were written not to churches but to pastors. Two to his young protege, um, Timothy, and Titus. Philemon is also one of those, but we usually tag that on to Colossians when we go through that. But as we get into these letters, let's remind ourselves that all Scripture, this is, we'll encounter this in Paul's second letter to Timothy, but all Scripture, not most of it, not just the Torah, all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. What does that mean? It turns out the Greek word means God-breathed. God breathed. And as a guy that specializes in information sciences, I can tell you it's my persuasion that every letter is there by deliberate design of the Holy Spirit. Every letter. Jesus engages the lawyers in Matthew 22 in a question they couldn't answer. 
You know, how can David call him Lord? Who, who, you know, whose son is he? Messiah is the son of David. Well, how can, the, how, can the, how can David call him Lord? Remember that? They couldn't answer him. When you study what he said, his entire argument hangs on a yacht. A little yacht before Adonai makes it possessive. How can David call him my Lord? The whole issue hangs on a yacht. And indeed, not one yacht or one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The more you study the scripture carefully, the more you discover every detail is there by deliberate design. And it's what? It's profitable for what? For doctrine? What is, what is doctrine? Doctrine, reproof, and correction, and instruction. We, glib that, we, we run that off so glibly when we quote that verse. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction. What does that mean? Well, doctrine is it tells you what's right, what's correct. For reproof, it tells you what's not right. Okay? For correction, how to get it right. And for instruction, how to stay right. Okay? Does that help? I don't want to help me to try to understand the subtleties of those you know, four um, uh, attributions. The pastoral epistles. How many of you in the full-time ministry have already sprung that on you? Okay. The overview here, we're going to talk about diversity of gifts. All of us in this room have different gifts. And when we fail to exercise those gifts, we defraud the body of Christ. You need to understand that. We're going to talk about the depth of commitment. Depth of commitment. You all know about the difference between ham and eggs, right? The chicken that provided the eggs was involved. The pig that provided the ham was committed. Okay. <laughs> okay. The Jews have a civil you know, lox and bagel, uh, lox and, and, and uh, cream cheese thing, uh, 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 same kind of thing. Anyway, now the challenges we're going to face are going to be substantial and they're predictable. So these letters are going to deal with our diversity of gifts, our depth of commitment, challenges, and they anticipate today. One of the things that's going to probably surprise us is how piercingly relevant. These letters are to us today. What's going on in the church today? As we study the lay of the sea and horizon, we'll discover how much is relevant and anticipated in these letters. Not by Paul, but by the Holy Spirit in writing the letters. So the first epistle of Timothy is going to focus on the local church and its minister. And it's going to be charged to guard the deposit. We talk about the assembly and its conduct concerning order, men and women, there going to be some very disturbing passages in here for the girls. They're going to hate me before the evening's over. Um, concerning the office of elders and deacons, what is that all about? And the last uh, uh, part of it will be about the minister and his conduct. That's the whole epistle, not the one. We're going to take all this. We're just going to take a chapter two tonight. Second epistle, we'll talk, continue uh, a challenge to faithfulness for the true pastor and testings and end, end time troubles. We're going to find it very eschatological, surprisingly enough. And so the modern church, where is the gospel in the modern church? It's astonishing how many people can go to church and not hear the gospel. I think one of the most universal choruses we hear as we travel by people that are upset because they don't ever hear about the shed blood of Jesus Christ in the churches. Well, that's old-fashioned evangelism. Really? Yeah. Well, that's, where's the gospel? Where's the call to obedience and accountability? had an interesting discussion with Mike Gendron, who heads up a very interesting ministry. It was primarily to Catholics, but by ministering to Catholics, he came out of Catholicism, and he ministers to, to uh, Catholics that are uh, 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 
trying to repair those deficiencies. And it's, he says he's learned some interesting lessons about evangelism from that background. He thinks that one of the problems in the church today is that we go to evangelism by non-biblical methods. And he says, Chuck, how many times does the word love occur in the book of Acts? The guide for the early church is the book of Acts. That's the chronicle of the early church, right? How many times does the word love appear in the book of Acts? Answer? Zero. Now, he's not, not knocking love. That's not the point. The point is, in those days, the message was our accountability to our Creator. We don't hear much about that today. It's all this quick, easy, you know, go down the sawdust trail, get your get-out-of-hell-free card, and boy, that's it. That's not the way they did it in the first century. What about this business of obedience? If you love me, you'll, get, you'll, you'll uh, keep my commandments, he says. What are his commandments? That's a whole other issue. And what about accountability? Are we accountable? Well, we don't earn our salvation. Absolutely not. You're right. Our salvation comes 100% by what Christ did when we, because we're justified by him. So when we accept Christ, our passport to heaven is stamped. We haven't changed to hinder anything. That's okay. No problem. That part's good. What about, what happens then? Sanctification. What's all that about? Where's the call to obedience and accountability? And of course, this I, which book of the New Testament chronicles the early church? That's, of course, the book of Acts. And how many times the word love appear there? Zero. Zero. That should give us pause. Not that, love's important. Don't misunderstand me. It undergirds everything God has done. The whole drama of redemption is the extremes God has gone to because he loves us so much. But that wasn't the early church's goal. What's the symbol of the emergent church? I think it should be an apple with a worm crawling out of it. That's what's emerging. Okay. In, through these letters we're going to look at, these pastoral letters, we're going to find some have turned aside. Some have made a shipwreck, Paul says. Some shall fall away. Some have turned after Satan. Some have been led astray. Some have missed the mark. What's our challenge for you and I? Finishing well. That's the challenge for all of us. If you've been called, if you've been saved by Christ, praise God. But now your challenge is to finish well. How tragic it is as we see greats, people with a distinguished history, crash and burn spiritually. Make the, the headlines are continual. Tragic, tragic. Let, let that not be us. A couple of quick quotes to give you the flavor of where we're headed here. Second Timothy, we're talking about Second Timothy now. Chapter 1. For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I've believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against this day. Chuck, do you think you can lose your salvation? I says, absolutely can, if it depended on me. But I know whom I believed, and he, that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Or from John 10. You've heard my quip. I always attribute it to Walter Martin because it, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it sounds like him. If, God, if you can lose your salvation, then i got a new name for God. Butterfingers. Because he's the one that it's all been entrusted to. But finishing well is the real issue. Paul can say, I fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. There's one of those crowns we were asking about. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, 
but to all them also that do what? Love his appearing. Praise God. Finishing well. That's what it's all about. Let's talk a little bit about some background. I'm just going to excerpt a few things from the Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. You probably have been some time since you've gone through. Let's just refresh. On Damascus Road, Paul, a Jew born a Roman citizen and raised in Tarsus to the best Greek schools as well as the best Jewish schools, educated in Jerusalem as a Pharisee under Gamaliel. He holds coats while Stephen is stoned, and he then becomes a violent persecutor of the Christian church. And, of course, on the way to Damascus, he's confronted by whom? Jesus Christ. Boy, that was an encounter. And he visits with Ananias. His, Ananias, his blindness is healed, and he's baptized. Then he spends, he stays in Damascus, and during that era, he spends three years in the desert in Arabia. Many people don't realize that. Instructed. And then he returns to become a phenomenon. One of the brightest minds that ever walked the planet Earth. One of the best educated in the Greek schools, best educated in the Jewish schools. A very unique, very unique human being. And he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And three years after his conversion, he has to leave town in a basket. Because they're after him. He goes to see Peter and Barnabas. And they're, they're terrified of him because they regard him as the enemy. But uh, they make their peace together and, and acknowledge each other. And after two weeks, he's smuggled out of there, taken to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. He spends 10 years in Tarsus, during which he makes a few visits. But he's still unknown to the believers in Judea. Those that know of him remember that 10 years ago, he was, a, was slaughtering Christians. Barnabas, though, tracks him down, brings him to Antioch, which becomes sort of a, a, the major capital for the early church in the, in the, in the, in the Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, they teach together for about a year, and then they, along with Titus, uh, bring famine relief money to Judea, and they meet with the church leaders and acknowledge Saul's ministry to the Gentiles and so forth. His name is still Saul at this point. It'll be Paul shortly. And during his first missionary journey, he visits a number of places, one of which is Lystra. He's going to meet a young guy there in Lystra, but he doesn't call him until his next missionary journey. But anyway, he, uh, they, they set out from Antioch to Salamis and uh, then to Paphos, and then they head up, to, up into the uh, uh, area that you and I would think of as uh, Turkey and so forth, but um, the Galatians. And uh, so um, John Mark is with them. They encounter Bar-Jesus, a false prophet. He's struck blind. The governor then becomes a believer. He's impressed with all of that. John Mark then leaves to Jerusalem, and a dispute will occur later over this whole issue. But they go up to, up to Antioch, a different Antioch. There's two Antiochs, okay? Antioch of Syria and the other one. And so, uh, so uh, they're there for quite a while, but the Gentile plot forces them to head on. Head on. So at Lystra, he heals a cripple. At Lystra, he, when he visits the next time, that's when he'll pick up T Timothy, the guy we're going to read the letter to. And uh, they're hailed as gods and so forth. And they're almost killed in each one of these places. They flee to Derby. And each place they win more disciples, but each place they, they are under threat, physical threat of their lives. And so, okay, then they return the way they came. You go back the way they came, encouraging the churches they planted. And they report everything to the headquarters in Antioch. And uh, there's then an event that you need to be clear in your mind because it affects us every day. Council in Jerusalem. This huge controversy erupts over the obligations of Gentiles that become Christians. 
The Jewish mind was they became Jews and then accept their Messiah. That was their mindset. Does a Gentile have to be circumcised to become a Christian? That was a serious question in those days. Does a Gentile have to keep the Mosaic law? Paul and Barnabas and others go down to Jerusalem to settle this issue because they've discovered that the Gentiles are having incredible conversions and so forth, and they're being obstructed by these Judaizers, those that believe they have to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. Peter also is going to testify. And I love the way Peter summarizes his presentation. It says, Now therefore, why tempt ye God and put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? He's a Jew talking to Jews here. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they are. See the inversion? He's not saying they're going to be like, guys, we might be as effective as they are. Says, that's what they've built up to in the, in the, as Paul. And, and, the, and there are two problems that are raised in this council, and we need to understand both of them. And the first one, of course, is the principal one. What must a Gentile do to be saved? They've got to resolve that. But there's something else that lurks behind the scenes that's not obvious until you study that passage. What has become of Israel? If a Gentile doesn't have to become a Jew to become a Christian, what's to become of Israel? Has all this been for nothing, our whole history? And James, who's chairing this thing, speaks out. He says, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written, quote, and he's quoting from Amos 9 here. After this will I return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. What's he talking about? The Davidic kingdom. The millennium is a fulfillment of the Davidic king, uh, covenant. So he points out, the Gentiles should abstain from idols, from fornication, and from things strangled in blood. That's it. There's no Ten Commandments. No circumcision. Just a few basics. There's no commitment to the ceremonial laws, circumcision, and so forth. But the other issue is the issue of Israel's destiny. And Paul will write three chapters in his definitive statement of Christian doctrine called the Book of Romans. Chapters 9, 10, 11, hammering away that God is not finished with Israel. They have a whole future once this has all been accomplished. Well, this leads anyway after that. That's a very important conference because... A convert does not have to keep the Mosaic law. But we're going to discover that he had Timothy circumcised. Why? That'll be a question on your final. Okay. In any case, second missionary journal. We've just, we summarized the first one. Now the second one takes place. Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, and Ephesus primarily. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas argue over Mark. They're all upset. Paul is really upset with John Mark because he didn't cut it. When they went up to the rough country of Galatians, he cut loose. Probably came from a young guy from a rich background, a little too rough for him. So Paul felt he was a quitter. Barnabas and he have a big argument over this. So they split up. That's God's way of broadening the outreach here. Later on, later years, Paul and Mark will make up and that'll all be healed over. But right now there's an issue between them. And so Barnabas takes Mark with him to Cyprus. Paul takes Silas to Galatia. And at Lystra... When he gets to Lystra, that's where he encounters Timothy to join them. I don't have evidence. I suspect that he probably met him on his first trip as impressed. But on this trip, he actually recruits him to join him, and he does. He becomes an important sidekick to Paul, which is one reason his letters are so important to us that we're going to go through here. 
So Paul's going to pick him up here. We're now at about Acts 16, if you're following us. You're feeling your way through Acts by the time we get there. And then they go to Iconium and Antioch, and uh, they publish the decisions of the council in Jerusalem as to what the ground rules are for Gentile conversions and so on. And then they get to go to, he tries to go to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit blocks him from that. And uh, it's interesting how the, we need to understand that the Holy Spirit can slam doors. Paul wanted to go there very badly. The Holy Spirit said, no, no way. How did he say that? I don't know. Circumstances, whatever. And uh, at night, though, he has a vision. In his vision, there's a Macedonian, somebody from over here, from, you know, on, uh, way west in Macedonia, says, come on over and help us. We're in trouble. You know who that guy was in the dream? Make a guess. We don't know who he was, but make a guess. Luke. Luke. That's my suspicion. Just a suspicion. And uh, so, we do find when he gets there uh, to to, uh, Troas that uh, Luke joins him. A doctor, a slave, and he becomes a a, a confidant and a a major thing. And And they sail then for Macedonia. Go to Philippi, encounter a meeting with an evil spirit. The crowd attacks them. They're flogged, imprisoned, freed by an earthquake. Isn't that an exciting career path, huh? You want to be flogged, imprisoned? You know, if you play your cards right, you can be just like Paul. <laughs> Jailers converted. And then they travel to Thessalonica. And uh, he convinces both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews, in each place, it's the Jews that stir up the riots. And uh, he leaves secretly for Berea. Better reception there, but the mob stirs him up again. And uh, they leave for Athens. Silas and Timothy stay behind as his representatives. Paul speaks at the Mars Hill, that famous event. And uh, and then he departs for Corinth. We'll talk about Corinth later on as we get into the whole background of the other letters. But uh, Silas and Timothy bring news from Thessalonica. He writes the Thessalonican letters. And uh, spent almost two years there despite uh, uh, um, opposition. That's in Corinth. And so uh, it's interesting to read the Thessalonians' letters because they're so full of eschatological insights, yet he just he planted this church, and two weeks later, two, three weeks, during those two or three weeks, he teaches them the rapture, all that stuff. Because he reminds them all of that when he writes the letters to them. Then they sail to Ephesus. They want him to stay, but he has to keep moving. So they finally end up going back home. And that ends the second missionary journey. We'll summarize the third before we get to the second letter. We're in the first letter that Paul writes to Timothy. And uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God to our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. Pretty straightforward opening of 1 Timothy. The word commandment here, that means by royal commission. He's actually sent by whom? The King of Kings. That's pretty exciting to realize that. We need to understand that we can be just like Paul in that regard. Can you be sent by the ruler of the universe? Absolutely. He's a great guy to work for. And the retirement program is out of this world. <laughs> He's our savior. Ten times in these pastoral epistles, that's the way he'll be labeled. Our savior. Our hope. Our blessed hope. And he is coming for us, and that should be the ultimate encouragement for all of us. We're, if we're in the ministry, we're going to be in times of stress. There's going to be challenges. We need to keep ourselves focused on the blessed hope. That's why it's called the blessed hope, because it sees us through these things. Okay, second verse. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and 
Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I introduced, I, I summarized Paul by just doing a quick skim through the Acts uh, journeys. What about Timothy? Before we jump in this letter, let's understand a little bit about Timothy. What's he all about? He was the son of a Greek father and a Jewish mother. So his mother was Jewish, his father was not. And uh, there's no mention that his father was saved. He apparently was influenced by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois. They were both known for their sincere faith, and they're the ones that really tutored him. Praise God for that. And he was living at Lystra when Paul visited that city on his first journey. He lived, he lived there then, but he wasn't called to the second journey. He apparently had earned a good reputation. And uh, Paul probably, he may not, there's no reason to believe that he was the one that led him to Christ. More than likely it was, uh, you know, the grandmother and mother. But he probably had ordained the young minister uh, finally and had great confidence in him, we'll discover as we go along here. At any rate, he already knew and believed the Old Testament scriptures thanks to his mother and grandmother. And so that's why Paul could pick him up as a promising protege. And his promise for the ministry was recognized early, as we'll see reconfirmed several times in these letters. And apparently, there's also the hint that there were certain prophetic utterances confirmed that confirmed his appointment. And uh, we should recognize that happens today. That happens today. There are some groups that overemphasize some of these gifts. There's other groups that deny these gifts. But these gifts are around. And some of them are indeed legitimate. Paul became like a spiritual father to a young man. And he refers to him as my true son in the faith. My dear son. That's a repeated phrase by Paul to, to express the endearment and the role that Timothy, this young Timothy had. And so he became a companion, one of his most trusted uh, fellow laborers. All through his epistles, you'll find him referred to. And he became his representative and messenger on several occasions. Again, all through his letters. And uh, six of Paul's epistles include Timothy in the salutations. He not only did write a letter to someone, he included Timothy as, a, uh, uh, as his companion. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 1 Timothy. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, please visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.